already in episode 8. A heartfelt thank you for continuing the journey with me. Since this episode coincides with Dear Diary Day, an autobiographical podcast is perfect. This episode takes a look at my DNA from 23andMe, more funny stories from the farm, school life, my interest in cooking, and ends with another authored poem. I also hope that you found the short take on my travel around the world of interest. One thought is that if the short takes interrupt your interest in the primary story, they are numbered with a ST prefix, as well as white and orange episode art. So if you want to skip those, it will be easy to do so. Before I get back to the primary story, I'm sharing my 23andMe results. When I first did it, or since I first did it, there have been two updates, and both changed the Ancestry map. I also did the test with Ancestry.com, and they too had an update this past year. The result? Well, both show the same thing now. I am apparently 97.1% Korean and 2.8% Japanese. Why is this odd? I was told, growing up, that I was likely half European, so that's what I went with. The rationale was that Tegu was where a large number of European soldiers were assigned during the war. A plus with 23andMe is that they go into more specific detail with regions in Korea that I likely was from. The test says mostly from the Seoul area and a little from three others. The Taegu area is part of those, one of those three areas, but who knows for sure. I'm posting the map. In addition, the DNA results predicted there are 445 scientifically possible matches from second cousins to sixth cousins from the population that have taken the DNA test. When looking at the profiles, many say they were adopted from Korea and looking to find family members. While I don't know a lot about DNA, the results tell a story that the two or so generations of those that have shared DNA of two to six segments give me a sense of where the story of the state of where the state of the Republic of Korea was from the time frame when I was found. The closest DNA match showed we shared great grandparents. That seems like a fairly close tie. On varied Facebook communities of Korean adoptees searching for their birth families, many have some similar experiences. Of course, each has their own story, and those stories have been both positive and sometimes delayed angst in their search. Some of these stories give me a boost in telling my story to show others that they are not alone in some of their experiences growing up in both diverse and less diverse environments. I'm glad I did the test, because another aspect of 23andMe is that they predict the likelihood of various long-term medical conditions. For me, it seemed valuable, because my family medical history is unknown, and a glimpse, in, a glimpse into what my DNA says about that was of great interest. Back to the journey at Regochi Bend. We were settled into our routines by now and life was good. Farming is hard work and it's also very rewarding. 
Plus, as mentioned, goats are friendly and have playful as well as passionate personalities. Regular visits from family members on both sides came to visit, grandparents, aunts and uncles, and cousins. I know for me, learning from my aunts and uncles is a part of my growing up. We saw mom's brothers frequently, both to help us with modifications, and also because I had a sense they had a genuine interest in the farm. I remember that the relationships with our cousins was very close, as we only had one set of first cousins on each side of the family. We'd usually see them during summers because of something called school. Mom continued her research on lineage, and that was paying off for us in several ways. The learning curve was being flattened, and between school and the farm, we were busy, and at the same time, learning a lot in terms of values and important aspects of life that would give us solid starts for our futures. In the last episode, I hinted that mice, bees, a beer sign, and walking and kicking would be the next phase of harvesting hay. It isn't the only, it isn't the choreography for a musical, although perhaps it could have been. So, here we go. As you remember, the first year, we learned that keeping half the hay wasn't enough for the growing herd at Rigochi Bend. Since we needed so much hay, we paid a neighbor farmer to cut some of the hay to see how that would work. If the hay was cut, we figured that we could get it in the barn. Or could we? I'm sure you've heard the saying, make hay while the sun shines. This is because once the hay is cut, you don't want rain. You want a beautiful sunny day so that the hay dries quickly and can be harvested. Harvesting wet hay means a smoldering fire in the barn. That's a bad idea. Thankfully, we did not learn that the hard way. The hay is cut. How to get the hay from the field to the barn was next. What to do, what to do. Looking over the resources that we had, we cleaned up the horse-drawn equipment that we could use. Actually, that included everything except for the harrows. The dump rake was the first to be incorporated into the plan. If you're not familiar with a dump rake, it was made to be pulled by a horse, and in our case, either the station wagon or the van. I'm posting a stock photo of a dump rake in the episode photos. Someone sits on the dump rake and pushes the lever to dump the hay, so hopefully it's along a straight line to then accumulate on a wagon or in a baler, something we didn't have. Timing is important. There is a lag time between when you push the lever with your foot and when it pops up and dumps the hay. So, you have to have balance so you don't get thrown off into the rake. Mark seemed to have the courage and the timing to do this first. So, once the hay was dry, one or two really good sunny days, the hay was raked up into rows. By this point, again, neighbors are lined up on County Road watching the site. So, Mom and I were sitting at the dining room table. She looked out and saw that Genesee beer sign. A light bulb came on. The big sheet of metal was about the width of a vehicle and not quite as long. Mom had me go down and take down the billboard. I don't remember how, but I managed to get that hunk of metal down and hauled it back to the house. The idea was to make a way to tow that metal sign behind a vehicle to collect the hay 
because there would be limited friction with the ground. We used a chain connected in the two corners on the metal side and to the trailer hitch on the station wagon. After the hay was dry, Mom drove the station wagon through the field and we would use pitchforks to toss the hay on the sign. She would drive the sign into the barn and we would unload it. So, are you picturing this? Our neighbors would see either a station wagon or sometimes the van pulling a pile of hay, but they couldn't see the metal sheet. So imagine seeing the vehicle across the field with a pile of hay following it. Again, they're lined up along the road. The problem is the sign plan didn't work for the whole season. Just because how well would this really work when you turned, stopped, or needed to go in reverse? So guess what? We bought a used hay wagon. It was like Christmas. It was used, so again, mom's creativity came into play. I'm sure most of you have seen a hay wagon or pictures of them. They're basically a flat wooden surface about the same size of a mid-sized car with four tires. Mom decided to spruce up our hay wagon and painted the wheels lavender blue. I'm sorry, lavender purple, one of Poppy's favorite colors. You guessed it, our neighbors were wondering what's going on. I mean, nobody else painted their farm equipment wheels. Like Nathan Hale's character Albert in the movie The Birdcage said, these? Well, one does want a hint of color. Mom also realized that due to the height of the wagon hook and the reality that the car and the station wagon chassis weren't really made for going into hay fields, we got another vehicle, a tractor. Yes, a real tractor. Ragochi Bend was in business. Graduating from a van and a big metal sign, we shifted to the tractor with a hay wagon. The only negative is that the hay wagon is up higher and it wasn't as easy to toss the loose hay up on the wagon as it was on the sliding sign on the ground. So, well, two steps forward, a half step back. Now that we had a tractor, next we thought maybe we should brush off that horse-drawn cutter and see if it would actually cut hay. I believe that one of the folks that stopped by regularly helped get that blade sharpened. It looked like we were in business. Mom drove the tractor and the kids were to go out and help as needed. It worked pretty well, except that we quickly discovered that after one revolution around the field, the next swath of hay would get caught in the end where the cutter was closest to the tractor. How could we fix that problem? With lots of helpers, each of us would position on the corners of the field that we were cutting. We would wait for mom to come around the corner and then we would move to the next quarter, corner, kicking the hay in a few inches so it wouldn't clog that next time around. Another solution fixed. Some people would say that we had enough kids to field a baseball team. Nope, we had enough to field a hay harvesting team. So picture this in your mind. We're walking the length of the field to the corner, kicking the hay in so the cutter wouldn't clog. We got exercise and it was fun, certainly at the beginning. But a new problem popped up. 
In the fields were nests of mice and small areas of bees, or maybe they were hornets, in the field. I still shudder. Mom would watch for them as she was driving around, and she would point straight down for us to avoid that area as we kicked the hay. That seemed to work too, kinda. But we kept wondering, how come the other farmers' cutters didn't clog? Was it because their newer technology? We didn't know. One day, one of our regular visitors came by and he saw us doing our walking and kicking process. He said, where is your swath board? What? What's a swath board? A swath board is a piece of wood that attaches to the end of the cutter and pulls the hay in six to nine inches so that it doesn't clog on the next trip around. Oh my goodness. As the Jefferson's theme song goes, we're moving on up. Since ours was old, sitting in the field for so long, the swath board had long deteriorated. That was awesome. The neighbor farmers still watched us explore farming, but we required a lot less people to cut hay. So we pulled up the hay wagon and throw the hay on the wagon. The hay would go to the upper level of the barn and we'd offload it for the winter. We call this Rigochi Bend success. In addition to the growing herd, the variety of animals continued to grow and will continue to grow into the next episode as well. We now had a couple of cats to help manage the mice population that found their way to a buffet called Bags of Feed. By this time, we also had a couple of ducks and geese. Duck eggs are a lot larger than chicken eggs and have a slightly different taste, yet they are still delicious. The ducks would lay their eggs in one place, usually close to an area where there was a slight swampy area, and we'd find a nest of half a dozen or more of them. Then, they would move the nest to a new place, and we'd have to find out where that was. We missed at least one nest because one year we had little ducklings. On the other hand, there was one white goose that would chase us from time to time, or at least chase me. It wasn't like the Aracana rooster, and I'm sure it was all in good fun. For him. I don't remember when, but eventually we got an old red pickup truck. It wasn't too long after we got the tractor, as I recall. Even though it was an old truck, it was in really good condition. I was even allowed to drive the truck in the fields. Well, I think I only got to drive it a couple of times. I'm sure you've heard of the saying, you can't hit the broad side of a barn. Guess what? I am able to disprove that saying. I remember the time that I hit the barn because I didn't negotiate the very, very, very large opening where you drive into the upper level. Oops. In fairness, it was a stick shift. At least I did stop when I hit it. You know, that was the only vehicle accident I've ever had where it was my fault. And yes, I can hit the broad side of a barn. School was going pretty well at this point. By 8th grade, I had found a great outlet for extracurricular activities. After school activities wasn't really an option due to the farm chores. And as you already know, music would require practice 
even for an all-state participant. So I found something that I really enjoyed. Library Club. I learned a lot in Library Club. I had the opportunity to get involved in special events at the school and I was able to explore my leadership skills early on. Really kind of important, when I needed a break, I could go to the library office and chill out. I'll integrate my experience in Library Club because by 1976, I was the longest serving member in school history at five years. I was president twice, parliamentarian once, and student council rep. I learned a lot. Mrs. Hotchkiss was our librarian. She was married to the shop teacher. Anyway, she was an amazing woman with a wonderful smile and a warm and welcoming personality. Not only did she teach me a lot, she took me under her wing through high school. She made the library a welcoming place, to be sure. I recently learned that she passed during COVID at 101 years of age. At some point early in my school years, I also learned that I couldn't be the President of the United States. This may seem trivial, because the chances are always small, small anyway. It did bring out another difference as an adopted kid from outside the United States. After all, I was just 79 days old when I came. I remember being pretty upset about this because I recall some kids made fun of it when it was brought up in class. Feeding our family was a challenge that mom and dad managed, I would say, very well. We had milk and eggs and meat sources. What we didn't have were enough vegetables. That's an easy solution. We planted a garden. It wasn't a normal garden. It was a giant garden. It was bigger than an acre, as I recall, and I don't know the exact measurements. I can still picture it. We grew lettuce and onions, tomatoes, cucumbers, buckwheat for flour, squash, green peppers, pumpkins, green and wax beans, carrots, radishes, and potatoes. As part of a 4-H project, I also grew cantaloupes and watermelons. I got bushels and bushels of cantaloupes. I got one watermelon. It was smaller than a tennis ball. That's how I learned that the Department of Agriculture zones indeed meant some things needed longer growing seasons. Our garden was organic and we had to do selective weeding. We also had to harvest the vegetables. The vegetables were consumed daily with much of it frozen and canned for winter. In fairness, the harvest would last almost the whole year. A negative was actually the harvest. I remember specifically late in the evening some of us would be out harvesting vegetables. Usually tomatoes and cucumbers is my recollection. There were so many. So here's a secret. Don't call the vegetable police. I'm pretty sure the statute of limitations has expired anyway. I would throw vegetables across the road just to get rid of them because there were just so many. You're probably thinking that throwing them across the road was harder than putting them in the basket. Oh well, I guess it was past my nap time and I wasn't thinking straight. By this time I was also experimenting with cooking. As a young boy, I always wanted to be a chef. 
Two of the things that I learned about were squash blossoms and cattails. We already forage for natural greens like dandelion greens, wild fruit, and Queen Anne's lace, which is caraway. All this grew naturally and it was free. We had squash in the garden, so I fried the squash blossoms. They were very good and very delicate. The cattails were also unique. I would find wild cattails, mostly in the spring, and they could be cut into strips and pan fried. More free food, and more than that, it was a variety and a chance for me to start my exploration in cooking. On the way to Allenville, there was a restaurant nestled in the trees that was visible from the interstate. It was a brown building with green shutters. The shutters had the silhouette of a T emblazoned inside. I dreamed of having a restaurant just like that. I would be in the restaurant business for many years. Alas, never in such a cute building. While we did produce a lot of produce, some things can't be produced in enough quantity for a family of our size. Potatoes is one of those items. I don't remember when it was, I think maybe the third year or so living at the farm. Mom and I were chatting at the table and she found an advertisement where you can buy feed potatoes by the truckload for nearly nothing. Feed potatoes are cold potatoes that are used for feeding livestock. You can also buy feed carrots by the truckload as well. I'm sure you know where this is going. The feed potatoes and the feed carrots were not for the animals. We bought a half truckload of potatoes and a half truckload of carrots. A truckload is a dump truckload, not a pickup truckload. We opened the double doors to the root cellar. I think there were two or three of us in the cellar and quickly as we could, we moved the potatoes and carrots into two distinct piles as they, as they came tumbling down. That winter we ate more potatoes and carrots than ever. We would send someone down, often me, to get enough for the upcoming meal. It wasn't a bad idea. Well, until winter faded and spring came. Along with the warmer weather, the potatoes and the carrots started to rot in the cellar. A half truckload was even more than the Twilligers could consume. A good idea turned into someone has to clean out the remaining potatoes and carrots out of the cellar with due haste due to the odor. I don't remember how long it took us to do that. I do know we didn't do it again. Another interesting food related story is about roast beef. Mom always cooked beef well done. That was our norm and it was fine. One day the gas stove ran out of gas. Dinner was only half cooked and there was a roast in the oven. Mom said, dinner is ruined and we needed to come up with something else. It looked fine to me and I suggested maybe we could cut off the ends and that would be cooked enough. It sounded okay to mom so she let us cut into it and by the third or fourth cut in, I tasted it. The meat was cooked medium to medium rare. Oh my goodness. It was so good. Anyone that knows me, I love my beef rare and running out of gas was a blessing to me in disguise. As this episode comes to a close, we have time for another short poem. I hope this will be a feel-good poem for everyone. 
The poem was written in 2020 and it is entitled, Was That Me? Did you smile at me as I passed by? Was it something that caught your eye? Were you just trying to make my day or did you have something you wanted to say? I thought you turned and smiled at me. It felt good and, after all, smiles are free. We all need someone to just give us a smile. I hope today and every day someone gives you many smiles. Remember, episode photos are posted on Twitter and Instagram. I'll plan to post a short take exploring Seoul over the weekend, as Korea is part of who I am. You'll learn soon that there was a time that I didn't like looking Asian. Yet, being there and learning more about my culture, it has become part of my favorite travel destinations, and especially Seoul. This episode is dedicated to Mrs. Hotchkiss, the Chattagay Central School librarian. She was just so kind to me, encouraged me, and mentored me in many ways other than library science. To Mrs. Hotchkiss, thank you, and rest in peace. The Boy in the Trash Can podcast is a production of CSJ Associates.